So um, if you've got your Bible, you can go to James 3, or you can go off the screen. There's notes pages on your table for you to fill in. If you fill in the blanks there, hopefully I'll give them to you. And a little bit of review on there. But James chapter 3 is where we're at today. We have looked at uh, the first couple chapters of James, and we've seen that James is a book about becoming a healthy disciple. And James <coughs> wants us to become a mature and a complete Christian. So healthy disciple <coughs> is what James is all about. And you've seen this image on the screen before because we've talked about it in our table talk. But the idea here is that our, our hands, our head, our feet would all be in sync and would look like Jesus. And so we use this diagram, and I want to challenge you to check yourself with this diagram today in these different aspects. This comes from uh, some missionaries and their, and their teaching overseas. But the head has to do with your thoughts, knowledge, wisdom. What do you know about God? So if you don't know God or you don't know the Bible, then you have – it's a small head, right? So we use this to, to draw a diagram. The one on the screen is pretty symmetrical. He looks good. He's like, this is a good, mature Christian. But when you draw yours, sorry, it's not going to be like that. Okay, All of ours are going to be a little lopsided in some way, shape, or form. So if you don't know much of the scripture, you don't know the Bible, you're going to have a small head. All right. Um, then the right hand is your relationship with God. If you're not saved, well, you don't even have a right hand. So your little guy doesn't have a right hand. Okay. And the left hand is your relationship with other people. If you're a jerk to people all the time, well, then your left hand is like, um, well, it might be huge because it's a bad fist. But really, Jesus speaking, it's like a bad hand also, a little hand, all right? And your goal is to have the, the right size hands for the job and loving hands. The heart has to do with your love, your faith, your attitudes, your emotions, and your wills. In other words, do you feel what Jesus feels? Do you see things the way Jesus sees things? So if the answer is yes, you have a good-sized heart. If not, it's a small heart. If you're like some of you have a super big heart, you just love, 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 love people, but your understanding of Scripture is small. So you've got a huge heart and a tiny head. So you need to like get your head a little bit bigger so it matches your heart, and then you could put your hands or feet to work uh, properly. Your feet has to do with your actions and your obedience to Christ. Uh, one of the feet is your evangelism. Do you share Jesus with people? And the other foot is do you obey everything else Jesus says to do? So Jesus says to go tell people, and Jesus also says lots of other things, okay, like – Love your neighbor. <clears throat> so that is the idea that we've looked at, and I want to challenge you with the book of James that this is an excellent tool to think about. So you might want to write that down or, or uh, do that if you get um, bored with my words. Hopefully you won't, but if you do, uh, then you could create your own little diagram of what you look like. All right. So this morning I want to specifically talk about how you need to tame your tongue. Yeah, you need to tame your tongue. Um, some people have tiny tongues and other people have big tongues, but really all of you have small tongues if you think about your body. All right, if you look at your hand, just put your hand up, look at it, and then think about the size of your hand versus the size of your tongue. All right? Your tongue is obviously a little smaller than your hand. All right? Uh, your tongue, however, is something that is very powerful that we're going to see in James today. And so you need to learn how to tame your tongue. In the book of James, he talks about the tongue quite a bit. In fact, in uh, 119, he said, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. That was chapter 1. And in chapter 1, verse 26, he had said, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. In James 2, 12, he said, so speak 
and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. In 4.11, he said, don't speak evil against another brother. In 5.12, he says, above all, do not swear, that's using your tongue, by heaven or earth. And we're going to get to all those today because we're going to tie those in with James 3, verse 1 to 12. But my point is this. James has a lot to say about the tongue, and you need to tame that tongue because taming your tongue is part of controlling who you are and controlling yourself. Remember how we talked about your desires. When they get out of control, they lead to what? What do out-of-control desires lead to? They lead to sin, and sin leads to death. But Jesus and God, they are not the originator of those temptations because God is the giver of only good gifts, and that does not lead to a good gift, sin and death. That's bad, right? Jesus brings life through the word of God. So those come from your own evil desires that you don't keep in check. When you keep them in check, then guess what? God can do the word through work through the word in your life, and then that will make you into a complete and mature Christian. Yeah. So, what, do you just say God tempted him during the test? Well, if they say God tempted him, is that true or false? No. It's false, exactly, because we learned that a couple weeks ago, right? God tempts nobody, right? But you're tempted when you're drawn away by your own evil desires. Does he test people? Is that the second half of your question? Um, he does, because he tested Abraham, right? So. Test and tempt, remember, two sides of the same coin, same Greek word, all right, but it's about motivation. So your teacher, do they test you or tempt you? They test you. No, they don't tempt you. They test you. See, you want to think they tempt you, but they don't. They test you so that you will demonstrate that you have knowledge. You have grown Testing is to demonstrate that you have grown. You pass the test and you move on. If you don't, then you stay where you are. You didn't grow. God tests for the same reason. It's growth, right? So Abraham, in Genesis 22, his great test was when he is told to offer up his son Isaac. And what does God say? He says he tested him in this, and now he knows he has demonstrated. Abraham has demonstrated through his faith that he truly is faithful to God. We talked last week at the end of our, our time together also uh, about Rahab and how Rahab had demonstrated her faithfulness in a similar way as well. So test and tempting can be difficult for us to grasp. Two sides of the coin. Uh, one is a negative motivation for you to fail, and the other is a positive motivation for you to pass the test and move on to maturity. Make sense? A little bit at least? So the thing with James is James is writing to help us grow in maturity. And so the question is, why aren't you growing in maturity? You say, yeah, it's because God keeps throwing all this junk in my life. And James is like, whoa, 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 stop right there. All good gifts come from who? God. So the fact that you're not growing, you can't go blame God for that. Oh, God put this stuff in my life, so I'm not growing. No, no, that's not how it works. See, the reason you don't grow is because of your own evil desires and your responses to what God's doing in your life. When Job was uh, tested in many, many ways, he lost his whole family, he lost his, his um, livelihood, his, his animals, all this stuff, right? Houses. So when he lost all this stuff, um, his wife says, curse God and die. But what does he say? No, naked I came into this world, naked I will go out of this world, and I will do what? I will praise him anyway, right? So that's the thing that we have to do. 
we have to evaluate <clears throat> how you think and what you really believe about God. And so in James chapter 3, here we pick up on the topic of the tongue. As James looks at this idea of growing in maturity, of pursuing the, the ways of God, God's wisdom, which remember, he said if you lack wisdom, what do you need to do? Ask. But when you ask, you can't doubt. Otherwise, you get nothing. So think this through. You've got to believe in God, but you've got to believe that God answers your prayer and that he gives you the good things that are necessary to grow in wisdom. It doesn't mean he gives you what you want. It means he gives you the necessary things for you to grow in maturity. The Bible says he's given us everything we need to live a life of godliness. All right? Now, so here we go. We pick up in James chapter 3, picking up on the topic of the tongue that was first uh, mentioned back in chapter 1 in 19 and 20. He says, Not many should become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a mature man who is also able to control his whole body. Now, James begins actually with an address to what group of people? Teachers. So actually, at first, he's speaking to me. Because right now, I'm up here teaching, right? So James is speaking to me at first. But the context of the, the first century and the, the churches that James is writing to, it appears that there was a lot of people clamoring to be teachers. They wanted to be the ones leading and teaching and talking. Now, if you think about teachers, they use a lot of what? Words, right? They talk a lot, right? Teachers talk. Sometimes you wish they wouldn't, right? Teachers talk a lot. The more you talk, the more likely you are to get yourself into trouble, right? The more you talk, the more likely you are to say something that is not true. All right. So James is saying, all right, you people all want to be teachers. Well, you need to just hold on a minute, okay? Because first off, he says teachers are going to come under greater scrutiny and judgment of God. But the other issue is why would so many people want to be teachers? In our culture, this is still true, but not quite to the, the same extent. We, we, have, we have a much more varied culture in some uh, aspects, I think. In, in the first century, what, what did they call the teachers? Anybody know? Rabbi. Rabbi, exactly. And so if you remember, Jesus actually said, okay, don't be one of these people that needs people to call you rabbi. See, rabbis had a lot of prestige, a lot of power, a lot of influence, status. Okay? So what James is really saying is it's not a problem to be a teacher. Okay? God calls people to teach. It's obvious. It's in Scripture. It's in Ephesians 4. It's elsewhere. God calls people and equips them to be teachers. But James is talking about this idea of uh, what I'm going to say is status and salary. He says, if you're doing it for status and salary, okay, or power and prestige, okay, if you're doing it so that people will think you're cool, which this is still a problem in our culture, okay, there are some preachers, like I don't have any in mind, I'm just saying, some people want to become preachers so they can have the status, okay, and they can have the salary. Now, most pastors, just so you know, most pastors do not get big salaries. Now, you hear about some of the big guys maybe on TV that have huge salaries, but if you add up all the pastors in America, okay, most of the pastors in America do not get big salaries, okay? It's just a small percentage, 
just like most people in America are not millionaires. It's just a small percentage, right? And even fewer are billionaires. It's the same thing with pastors, okay? Most people in America make just an average salary. Most pastors make an average or less than average salary. Many, many, many pastors work second jobs uh, to pay the bills because their church salary, if you will, is not enough. So with that being said, James's point is this. Okay, you don't go into the ministry, you don't try to become a teacher, okay, for salary or status, okay, for power and prestige. That's not what it's about. And the reason that you need to be careful of that is because you are going to receive a stricter judgment, he says. And so why would teachers receive a stricter judgment? <clears throat> well, because the tongues of teachers, okay, influence lots of people. The tongues of teachers speak out and spit out lots of words. And as you already know, the more words you say, the more likely you are to say something wrong or incorrect or sinful. Now, in James, James is also concerned with the first century church. We know from James, we know from Paul, we know from others, we know from Acts chapter uh, 4, that, or Acts chapter um, 2, that the early church was a close-knit community. Okay? And if the more words you speak, the more likely you are say something wrong in a close-knit community, what is going to be the consequence or effect of that? You're going to begin to cause issues in the church, rifts, hurt feelings. So James wants us to understand something. You are going to have to give an account if you're a teacher. So this is me now. Okay, I'm held to a higher standard and a great expectation by God. And I will have to give an account to Jesus for my words. Not just from the pulpit, because these aren't the only words I say, right? I talk with many of you one-on-one. -on -one. When I drive some of you back to Willow Key, we have conversations. When I see you on Wednesdays, we have conversations. Some of you come over to the house occasionally, or, or we might hang out at the park or whatever. We have conversations. James is saying this. As a teacher... You are in a position of leadership, and you're in a position where your words do matter. And how you say them and what you say is very important. For me in my life, my problem has most often been how I say something. You can ask anybody that's known me for more than, hopefully not a day, but definitely anyone that's known me for any length of time, how I say things is sometimes not the best. So sometimes I have to apologize, ask for forgiveness. I've hurt people. I've had people cry because of what I've said. Now, that doesn't mean that you never confront anybody. You don't confront sin. No, well, if you're confronting sin and they cry, if you did it in the right and loving way, I mean, that's okay. They can cry, right, because maybe that's showing sorrow and repentance. But the point James is making is, as a teacher, we have lots and lots of opportunities to really mess it up. And we are going to be held in high expectation and accountability before the judge, we will be judged by the judge. And so, don't be deceived by status and salary, power and prestige, because there's another aspect of that, this idea of being a teacher. Henrietta Mears is undoubtedly one of the greatest Christian educators that you know of. You might not know her yet, but I'm going to tell you about her. She was a, a Christian ed director at Hollywood Presbyterian Church during the 1940s and 1950s. And through her Sunday school teaching, 
they grew that to an unheard of number of 4,000 people at that time period. At the end of her life, teacher, that's what she was known, which I know, Jesus said, don't call him rabbi or teacher, right? But she was known as teacher. She was affectionately called that by her students. She could count no less than 400 young people who went into Christian service under her direct influence. Some of them were Richard Halverston, the chaplain of the United States Senate. Some of you might know who he is. And then several prominent pastors and uh, theologians. Two of these people, most of you, at least teenage years and up, should know who they are. Billy Graham and Bill Bright. Both had her as a Sunday school teacher. This woman's influence, she wrote some books. She started Gospel Light Publishing House, which was started to produce a Sunday school curriculum. It's still in existence today. This woman's influence through her teaching of God's word is still felt today. Why does who make teaching a competition? Okay, that is exactly what James is warning about, right? This whole idea of status, okay? That's not the salary part, that's the status, all right? Or the, the prestige, right? The competition. That misses the whole point. Because every teacher has to give an account to who? To God. We don't work for somebody else, okay, even if they give us a check. We work for who? God, exactly. And so this competition would be a problem. That's one of the things that James is trying to get rid of, all right? He's saying that's not what it should be about, all right? It's not about trying to have the biggest church or, or being known as the best teacher or speaker or, or whatever. He says, no, you're missing the point. And that's one of the correctives that he's offering. Now, that is Henrietta Mears, okay? But that's only one type of teaching if you – want to look at somebody else, you could look at somebody known as Jim Jones. Jim Jones was also a teacher, but Jim Jones, instead of having hundreds and thousands of people who he taught the ways of Jesus, who many then went on to teach others the way of Jesus, and some even started these big organizations like Bill Bright, Campus Crusade, Billy Graham Evangelist Association, etc., that then reached out to millions and billions even of people. Jim Jones, sorry, not quite the legacy he left. Instead, Jim Jones, through what he taught his people, he led them all to a big suicidal mission, basically, and their little church group or cult, whatever you want to call it, um, was left with a bunch of dead bodies because they followed his teaching. So it is important whose teaching you follow. It does matter what a teacher says and does because of the impact. So, was Jim Jones going to be accountable and judged by God for his teaching? Yes, his teaching led to the death of many people. Is Henrietta Mears going to be accountable and judged by God for her teaching? Yes, she is. Her teaching led to many people coming to know Jesus, and those people, many of them going out and bringing millions of people to Jesus. How? he convinced them of certain things that weren't true in scripture and they all drank a bunch of Kool-Aid and died. Jim Jones. Yeah. You can Google him on the internet. That was about 1978. So that's about um, 30 years after the, the time period I mentioned for Henrietta Mears. But <clears throat> this is the difference between the two. Teachers hold incredible power. Okay, Young or untaught minds in the hands of a skilled teacher are like clay in a potter's hands. 
That's why both Hitler, uh, both the uh, worldly education system, and many, many others have always said this. You give me an elementary school kid, and I'll have the whole country in one generation. That's their plan. If you look at the Humanist Manifesto, which is behind a lot of secular humanistic education, you will easily find the same statements. They have a plan, okay? It's been put in place many years ago. Um, if you wonder why education system is the way it is, go check it out. Um, and it was very simple. They were going to change uh, how teachers taught and then get the next generation. And once you get them, it's just a spiral domino effect. It continues on. Um, anybody that has studied history in these types of events knows that this is how it works. So the tongue of the teacher okay, has got to be tamed as well. Mine is going to be judged by God. And I need to be careful of what I say and how I say it. So you and I, though, need to ask ourselves some questions. The tongue is, is the way we become perfect or mature, James says. On the next slide, there's some different, different aspects and ideas that you need to consider. Are you patient and long-suffering with your tongue? Long-suffering, that means you put up with stuff. You just wait, have patience. Uh, are you kind? Do you rejoice in the truth? Do you believe God in all things? Do you hope? See, why are these up there, and how do they have to do with the tongue? Well, see, when you're not trusting God or believing God, what happens? You get frustrated, and then what comes out of your mouth? Yeah, what kind of words? Yeah, frustrated words. And do frustrated words bring about maturity? No, they don't. Do they show Jesus? No, they don't. They show the devil, as we'll see. Do you endure all things for God? Are you bragging, puffed up, jealous, rude, provoked, thinking evil, or are those things not in your vocabulary and in your tongue? Yes. Because where, as we'll see in a minute, do you think that the things on your tongue come from? Your mind. So, in reality, it starts in your mind or your heart, as we'll see in a few minutes. The end of our passage deals with that, so great question. James anticipates that. He knows you're going to ask these questions. That's why the Bible is so awesome. All these different things we've talked about, James knows you're going to ask them. So you look at these things on the screen, and you've got to ask yourself, where am I on this? How do I think? Because how you're thinking, okay, is going to come out in your words. That's what the Proverbs say as well. So we continue on. We've seen about you know the tongues of the teachers. And in James chapter 3, starting in verse 3, we continue what he says, and he says, now, listen, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we also guide the whole animal. And consider ships. Though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs them. So, too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. So consider how large a forest a small fire ignites. <clears throat> now, here James is, is moving on. He has talked about the teachers. He has mentioned that the teachers are going to come under greater scrutiny and judgment by God. He has mentioned that if you can control your, your tongue, you basically can control your whole body. And now he moves in to this aspect of discussing the aspects of, of the tongue, the power of the tongue, and what it can do. And so I, I like to think of this part because these are positive aspects as tongues of angels. So, yeah, we've looked at the, the tongues of teachers and now the tongues of angels. And why do I say angels? Because angels work for who? God. And so angels work for God. And, and if you think through scripture, when you see angels showing up, what do they say? They, they say 
I'm a messenger of God. They give the words of God, right? They speak God's words. And so when you and I think about the words that come out of our mouth, we want to consider, are we speaking the words of God or are we speaking the words of his enemies? And so here we see in this passage that the, the tongue, though it's very small, James compares it to several different things, which are small but are powerful. So the power of the tongue is incredible. And you, you all know this because you can remember, if I were to ask you right now, what is the nicest thing someone's ever said to you, most of you could tell me. And it probably wasn't last week. And then if I were to ask you, what is the most hurtful thing someone has said to you, you, I could just about bet every one of you had something you could tell me. And it was probably from months or years ago. Still lodged in your head. You say, you see, once the words are said, you can't take them back. They're gone. And they've started doing their work. They have started cutting and slicing, or they've started building up. And here in this portion, James is indicating how powerful the words are, but not, not in a negative <coughs> way. This is how positively powerful these words are. He says. They are small, but they are great. He draws upon these tangible examples that, that you and I know about, a rudder in a boat. But what does a rudder in a boat do? That little rudder moves the entire ship. You could have a huge ship, the Titanic, and a little rudder in the back of that thing tells the ship which way to go. You break the rudder, and now you are? Yeah. You're at the, the will of the, the wind and the waves. But with that little rudder in there, it directs that whole ship. You put a bridle. You put a bit in a horse's mouth. Okay? Now, a horse is like a half-ton animal. Are they powerful? Yeah. You get kicked in the head by a horse's hoof, and you're probably dead. Okay? It's happened to many people. But... I could take one of you kids, if you knew how to use the reins of a horse, and I could throw you up on that horse. Some of you don't hardly weigh 50 pounds. Maybe some of you weigh 70, 75 pounds. You could throw you up on a, a horse that weighs a half a ton, okay, like a 1,000 pounds. And if you know what you're doing with those reins, you can make that horse dance. You can make that horse jump when you want. You can make the horse do anything you want. Why? Because you got that little piece of metal in his mouth. That's it. Bit hooked to those reins, and you tell it what to do, and it does it. See, a little tiny thing can be very powerful. What happens if you sit on its hat? What happens? It's just tiny. It's a little tiny point. A needle. I poke you with a needle. It's tiny, but it has a big impact. And so James says that. You have a big impact with your tongue. It is small, it is tiny, but it has a great impact. Proverbs 26.20 says, Where no wood is, there the fire goes out. So where there is no talebearer, the strife ceases. What's he saying? He's saying when you don't keep gossiping, when you don't keep saying things to build up the situation, it'll go out. Okay? Do you put the water on or do you add gasoline to the fire? Which are you? So you, know, you get to a situation and people are all upset. 
and you just add to it, oh, yeah, I heard they did this, too, and they did this, too. And you're just stoking the fire, throwing gasoline on it, throwing more wood on it. Instead, what will God have us do? He says, bite your tongue. That's right. Put some water on it. A gentle answer turns away wrath. And so here what we have is the power of the tongue. Okay, do you use it for God, or do you use it to oppose what God is, is doing? Uh, fire is very powerful. He talks about a spark setting a whole forest on fire. Now, it's doubtful whether there's anything more dis, uh, destructive in nature than that. The liquid fire from a single volcanic eruption has been known to bury entire cities. The Great Chicago Fire in 1871 destroyed almost one half of the city and made almost 125,000 people homeless. In 1953, a pan of rice boiled over onto a charcoal stove in a small home in Korea. Before 24 hours had passed, almost 3,000 buildings were completely destroyed within an area covering one square mile. One little fire, one little spark. Some of you are old enough to remember the old commercials that, uh, what was it, Smokey had or something? About, you know, toss the cigarette out the window because it could start a forest fire. You know? Not that you smoke, but anyway. Candy, what was your question? Charcoal stove, uh-huh, 3,000 homes gone. Yeah, just another little thing, right? <clears throat> we went camping a, a week or so ago, and after we got up in the morning, okay, remember, we've been, we've been in bed, right, for, I don't know, 10 or whatever hours, 9, whatever it was. Okay, there's no more fire going. But when I went to the fire pit, do you know what is still in the fire pit? Little sparks, yeah, little embers. So what did I have to do to start a fire? Oh, I just threw some pine needles on that and then put some big logs. And you know what? In about two minutes, that fire was blazing. So think about it. One of those little sparks got out of that fire pit and into those pine needles. This is, how, this is really how forest fires start, okay? One little spark on the pine needles, and then there's pine needles everywhere in the forest. So what does it do? That's right, exactly, does that. All over the place, right? And then what's it do? It starts going up the trees, and the trees get on fire. And pretty soon, this is how you get these forest fires you see on the news that are uncontrollable. They have them in California, right? They just had one in Tennessee. Um, I don't know if they ever decided where that came from, but I did hear that they thought it might have come. What's that? They assume it was coming. Yeah, somebody started it, okay? So Tennessee, like Gatlinburg, took out lots of stuff, all right? So, fire. And what is, what is um, James getting at with all this stuff? See, you can understand the impact of a spark and a fire and a forest fire. You can see it. James is saying, that's your tongue. That's your tongue. Do you have tongues of angels? Okay. Do you have tongues of angels? Or, he continues in verse 6, in James 3, verse 6, and he says this. The tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the whole body. It sets the course of life on fire, and it is set on fire by hell. Every sea creature, reptile, bird, or animal is tamed, has been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So this is the, the fire that we're talking about. Your tongue can either be uh, bridled and powerfully controlled, 
but like someone sitting on, on the back of a, a Mustang or a stallion. I'm not talking about cars, I'm talking about horses. All right? Or, okay, or it can set things on fire and destroy. Which one does your tongue do? Well, the mature man is the one who controls his tongue. He's the one that sits on the back of that big old horse, that Clydesdale, and he tells it what to do. Some of you, I've had conversations with you. You say, yeah, but I feel like doing this, or yeah, I want to do this, or I, I thought this. And I say what? Tell your body what? No. no. You tell your body what to do. You don't let your body tell you what to do. You control it. You don't let your tongue tell you what to do. You tell your tongue what to say. But Kevin, you're crazy. Well, I might be a little bit crazy, but really, this is what James says. You tell your tongue what to say and not say. Bridle that thing. Get a muzzle. Put a muzzle on that tongue. Get a filter. That's what James is saying. Where's James get this idea? Well, James was a Jewish guy. He was brought up in Jewish culture. The Proverbs, Proverbs 12, 18 says, rash words are like sword thrusts. Think about that. Rash means unthinking. When you don't think and you just say words, it's like a sword thrust. You're like, what do you mean, Kevin? It's like I'm sitting here taking a sword and shoving it in your gut. How does that feel? Yeah, that's what your words are like to somebody else when you don't think about them first. Proverbs 13, 3. Those who guard their mouth preserve their life. Do you want to preserve your life or just die? If you want to preserve your life, then you need to guard your mouth. What does that mean? Get a filter. Think before you speak. Those who open wide their lips come to ruin. If you want to be ruined, just say whatever you think. Or say whatever you want. You come to ruin. Proverbs 15 and 4 says, A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. You got a perverse tongue? You break the spirit. You hurt. And Proverbs 31, 26 says, She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. That's what you want. You open your mouth with wisdom. Remember, James is all about following whose wisdom? God's wisdom. Not earthly wisdom, but human wisdom. Does wisdom roll off your tongue? Or does words of war roll off your tongue? Which one is it? So, really, if you're the one that's throwing out sparks and swords, you don't have the tongue of an angel. You got the tongues of demons. Whoa, Kevin. Yeah. You got a tongue of a demon. Can a Christian have a tongue of a demon? Well, James is writing to Christians. And as you'll see, he's pretty serious about what he says. 1899, four newspaper reporters from Denver, Colorado, set out to tear down the Great Wall of China. They almost succeeded, literally. The four met by chance on a Saturday night in the Denver Railway Depot. Al Stevens, Jack Turney, John Lewis, and Hal Wilshire. They represented the four Denver papers, Denver Post, Denver Times, Republican, and the Rocky Mountain News. Each had been sent by their respective newspapers to dig up a story, any story, for the Sunday edition. So they were in the railroad station, hoping to snag a visiting celebrity if one got off the train. What day of the week is it? Saturday. What day is the paper going out? Sunday. It's the night before. They need a story for the paper. 
No celebrities arrived on the train that night. The reporters started commiserating. For them, no news was bad news. They were all facing empty-handed return trips to their city desks. And then what's the newspaper going to have? Are you going to print a newspaper with no story? What's that, a blank page? Who wants that? People paid for stories, right? So Al declared he was going to make up a story and hand it in. The other three laughed. What does that mean? He's going to make up a story and he's going to give it to his editor. He's going to hope his editor buys it and he hope it gets printed. They laughed. Someone suggested that they walk over to the Oxford Hotel and have a beer. So they did. Zach said he liked Al's idea about faking a story. Why didn't each of them fake a story and then they'd all get off the hook? So John and Jack were thinking too small or half-baked truths didn't cut it. What they needed was a real whopper if they could. So they had another round of beers. A phony domestic story would be too easy to check on, so they began discussing foreign angles that would be difficult to verify. After all, if you can just make a phone call and see if it's true, it's not going to work, right? And then they'll get in trouble. China was far away. It was agreed. They're going to make up a story about China. John leaned forward, gesturing dramatically in the dim light of the bar room. Try this one, he said. A group of American engineers stopping over in Denver en route to China. The Chinese government is making plans to demolish the Great Wall, and our engineers are bidding on the job. Harold was skeptical. Why would the Chinese want to destroy the Great Wall of China? John thought for a moment. They're tearing down the ancient boundary to symbolize international goodwill and to welcome foreign trade. Another round of beers. By 11 p.m., the four reporters had worked out the details of their preposterous story. After leaving the Oxford bar, they would go over to the Windsor Hotel. They would sign four fictitious names to the hotel register. So they checked four people into the hotel. They don't exist. They would instruct the desk clerk to tell anyone who asked that four New Yorkers had arrived that evening, had been interviewed by the reporters, had left early the next morning for California. The Denver newspaper carried this story, all four of them, front page. The Times headline read, Great Chinese Wall Doom, Peking Seeks World Trade. Of course, the story was phony, ludicrous fabrication, concocted by four capricious newsmen in a hotel bar. But their story was taken seriously. It was picked up and it was expanded on papers in the eastern U.S. and then by newspapers abroad, international. When the Chinese learned that the Americans were sending a demolition crew to tear down their national monument, they were indignant and some were enraged. Particularly incensed were the members of a secret society, a volatile group of Chinese patriots who were already weary of foreign intervention. They, inspired by the story, exploded, rampaged against the foreign embassies in Peking, and slaughtered hundreds of missionaries. In two months, 12,000 troops from six different countries joined forces. They invaded China with the purpose of protecting their own countrymen. The bloodshed which followed, sparked by a journalistic hoax, invented in a barroom in Denver, became the white-hot international conflagration known to every high school history teacher and student as the Boxer Rebellion. Got that from R. Kent Hughes. Yes? That's right. That's the spark from your mouth. Set on fire a whole forest that killed a whole bunch of people. Was that a tongue of an angel or the tongue of a demon? That was the tongue of a demon. What comes out of your mouth? Huh? You have the tongue of an angel or tongues of demons? 
tame the tongue, James teaches us that what we need to do is realize where these things come from. We need to realize that God desires for us to be a mature and a complete Christian. Every year, people spend great sums of money to watch animals perform. Have you ever been to the circus? Have you ever been to SeaWorld? Okay. How much money do they spend to get these animals to do these tricks? So we can tame the wildest animal. A bear, a lion, a gorilla, a zebra, whatever. We can tame any animal, but you can't tame that little tiny tongue. How do you tame this big old lion that would rip your head off? You ever been in the circus and you see these guys sometimes? They'll put their head inside the lion's mouth. You ever see these guys that do it with alligators? Okay, but they can't tame their own mouth. How is that possible? That's what James is saying. How how is it that we're able to tame these little animals, dogs, cats, bears, little fish, but our own mouth? We spot off at the mouth, throwing out knives and forks and, I don't know about forks, but knives and sparks, ripping people up. Our ability to speak allows us to do all these great things. It's powerful, but we can't control our own mouth. Our tongues are like a wild animal on the loose, throwing people all over the place. Yeah, it's kind of a funny pick, right? That's our tongues, bucking people off, knocking people around. We're crazy. James says this shouldn't be how it is. We shouldn't have tongues of demons. Remember, he's not writing to lost people. He's writing to the church. He's writing to Christians. Do lost people have tongues of demons? Do lost people have tongues of demons? Yes, they do. But are God's people supposed to have tongues of demons? No. We should have tongues of angels. In James 3, verse 9, James continues. He says, we praise our Lord and Father with it. We curse men who are made in God's likeness with it. Praising and cursing coming out of the same mouth. My brothers, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives? My brothers, or a grapevine, can it produce figs? Neither can salt water spring yield fresh water. If you want water to drink, do you go to the ocean or do you go to the spring? You go to a spring. If you want fig trees, if you want figs, I mean, do you go to a fig tree or an orange tree or an olive tree? You go to a fig tree. So what is going on? We sang songs this morning about praising God. And then this afternoon, if you're not careful, some of you are going to tear down your brother or sister. How can we sing songs to God and three hours later rip each other apart who are made in God's image? The word hypocrisy comes to mind. James actually uses hypocrisy percentage-wise more than anybody in the New Testament. Remember being double-minded? If you're double-minded, you get nothing from God. No wisdom, no nothing. You must trust and believe him completely. So what is the heart of the matter? What is James getting at? The heart of the matter is that the wicked tongue, the problem, the sparks that set things on fire, is is a root of unrighteous judgment. That's what it is. The heart of the matter is that you have roots of unrighteous judgment in you. 
When you're tearing somebody apart, when you're ripping somebody apart, what is it you're doing? You're standing in judgment upon them. How can the same thing, good and bad, come from the same source? How can the same source bring out this salt water and this fresh spring water? It can't. That's not how it's supposed to be. It doesn't work that way. Fig trees bring figs. Olive trees bring olives. Apple trees bring apples. Orange trees bring oranges. God's children speak words of angels. The devil and his crew speak words of demons. You should have the tongue of an angel, not the tongue of a demon. If you're a child of God, our speech is always to be seasoned with salt, Paul says in Colossians 4, 6. This means that in any given moment, I can bring healing to an otherwise poisonous situation by speaking grace. I keep talking about how gracious God has been to me and how gracious he'll be toward others, the polluted puddles of put-downs and pettiness will become pools of purity and praise, says John Carson. That's what should come out of our mouths. You must control the tongue. The tongue cannot get away from you like it is in this picture. You've got to control it. In James chapter 4, he continues. Remember in the beginning today I told you that he talks about the tongue all through the book of James. Our primary text is James 3, 1 through 12. But I'm tying in several other passages, both for time's sake of our series and because they're connected. In James 4, 11 and 12, he says, don't criticize one another. Say, so criticizing are words that you would speak. So it falls under James 3, 1 through 12. Don't criticize one another, brothers. He who criticizes a brother or judges his brother criticizes the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, now focus on this text for a minute. We looked a few weeks ago at the idea of doing and not just hearing. In each of these contexts where we're talking about your tongue, if you look in James, you will see it is paired with the idea of judgment. Now, here's what happens. When you think that you're the boss, that you're the judge, that's where these words come from. Why do we criticize each other so much? Okay, this is brothers. Don't criticize one another. What's the next word? No. Don't criticize one another. Brothers. Brothers is a Christian term. It means family of God. Why do we rip down each other? Because we're standing in judgment. We think we're the judge. This doesn't mean you never correct anybody. You do. You correct your love, okay? This is criticizing, putting down, ripping people apart, using your mouth or your tongue like it's a sword, trying to make them a foot shorter so you're a foot taller. Why do you do this? Because you think that you're the judge. But you're not. Who's the judge? God's the judge. When you try to be the judge, you're standing in God's place. And so you're knocking down your brothers. You're knocking them out with your tongue. You think you're in the ring. Instead of knocking down your brothers, you should be building your brothers up. <clears throat> you're missing my image. Come on. Knocking down your brothers. Okay? Instead of knocking down your brothers with your mouth, okay, that's what you're doing. You're using your tongue to knock them down. Why? Why would we do that? Is that the tongue of a demon or the tongue of an angel? The tongue of a demon. Okay? 
knocking people down. What is God's desire to build you up, to encourage you, to mature you? So you're speaking evil. When we speak badly of other believers, James tells us that we're actually doing far more. We're maligning God's law and the giver of that law. Speaking to others in this way is equivalent to judging them, and judgment is reserved for who? God. So when you're knocking people out with your mouth, okay, you are standing in judgment on the law. It says law behind this guy on the right. You just can't see it because of the, the lighting. The law, remember from a couple weeks ago, is referring to what? God's word, which he has given to us, which we're supposed to read and obey. If you're just a hearer but don't do it, you're like the guy that looks in the mirror and walks away and does nothing. That's useless and pointless, right? So you're supposed to obey it. Okay? And why? Because James says the righteous judge is coming. So why do you need to pay attention to this? Because the righteous judge is coming. The heart of the matter is that you have roots of unrighteous judgment in you, but see, you're not even the judge. The righteous judge is coming. And if the righteous judge is coming, who is he going to judge? You. Yes, teachers. And who? You. You see, James started in chapter 3, verse 1. He first mentioned teachers, okay, the tongues of teachers. But then he moved on from there to everybody else. All right? The righteous judge is coming. Look at James 4, 11 and 12 again. <clears throat> it says, don't criticize one another. He who criticizes their brother or judges his brother criticizes the law and judges the law. Look at this last one. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your, your neighbor? Now, when you see the word neighbor, what should that remind you of? I heard different stuff. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, so hold that in mind. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. Look at James 5, 9 with me. It says, brothers, don't complain about one another. So you got criticizing and you got complaining. So that you will not be, what's the next word? What's the next word? Judge. judge. Yeah, so don't complain about each other or you're going to be judged. Look, what's the next phrase? The what stands at the door? The judge. What does that mean? He's standing at the door. That means Jesus is coming soon. Don't be complaining about each other and criticizing each other because who's coming back? Jesus coming back. So you better get ready. And how do you get ready? Stop criticizing. Stop complaining. Stop the demon tongues and have a angel tongue. Right. Then he says this. So because of that, you got to think, how do you respond? Okay. What is the way you respond? Do you rebel? Do you complain? Do you get even? No. Respond with what? Patience and letting God handle it. Look at James 5 12. Now, above all, don't swear. So he said, don't criticize, don't complain, and now he's saying, don't swear. Don't, have, don't take oaths, okay? Either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Why am I talking about this? Because it's using your what again? Your tongue. Yeah, we're almost done. Your yes must be yes, your no must be no, so that you won't fall under judgment. Okay, guys, this is serious. Every one of these is connected with judgment by God. Judgment is near. Don't defraud, why not? Be patient, why? Don't complain, why not? Don't swear, why not? Because what is near? The Lord's judgment is near. Every one of you has to stand before God. You're like, yeah, Kevin, who cares? I'm a Christian. I'll be saved. It don't matter. 
You don't understand scripture. It does matter. It does matter. As a Christian, you still will stand before God. See, Jesus gives you salvation. That's the foundation. From your foundation, you are supposed to build a house, so to speak. And Corinthians says, the Apostle Paul writes, if it's just wood, hay, and stubble, it gets burned down. You got nothing to show for what God gave you. That's going to be a problem. That's no bueno. That's not good. So as I try to wrap this up, let me remind you of James 2.12. In James 2.12, James has said, speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. And so there we are again. The words coming out of your mouth should be said with the idea that you will be judged by God. And so we have accountability. Do you want judgment or do you want mercy? In James 2.12, you see this visual. If you recall from when we studied James 2.12, he basically says this. If you want mercy from God, then you should what? Show mercy. Exactly. Because here's the bottom line. If you go back and read James 3, you'll find that James said this. He said, here's the deal. All of us, all of us stumble. We all mess it up with our tongue. There is no perfect person then if you can control your tongue perfectly, you are mature and can control your whole body. But the truth is that all of us mess it up, right? So do you want God to be merciful to you or destroy you? You want him not to destroy you. That is mercy. So James says if you want God to show you mercy, then you should show mercy to others. That's what he's saying here. You want mercy or you want judgment? The royal law is your guide. Okay, what do I mean by this? We talked about the royal law a couple weeks ago. This is how James builds on himself. The heart of the matter is the roots of unrighteous judgment. The righteous judge is coming, and the royal law is your guide. Well, what's the royal law? The scriptures. But more than that, now watch this. Okay, we are almost done. Okay, about three minutes, maybe four. All right, but I, I don't plan this. But ever since I taught Leviticus, it shows up everywhere. Okay, what's the royal law? Remember what you told me a minute ago? The last word up there a minute ago was about your neighbor, and, and that reminds us to love our neighbor. And where does love your neighbor come from? Leviticus 19.18. And what's the royal law of Scripture? So look at this next slide with me, okay? Leviticus 19 in James. Leviticus chapter 19, there's about five verses that are repeated in James or alluded to in James. And they're on the screen for you, and they're not going to be up there very long. But all of these passages are in James. He either quotes them or he alludes to them. And the point is this. That passage is about the, the, the royal law. It's about loving God and loving your neighbor. If you don't love your neighbor, do you love God? No, you don't. So let's flip it around for a second. If you love your neighbor, do you cut him down with your tongue? No, you build him up. If you love your neighbor, do you throw sparks of fire at them? No, you don't. If you love your neighbor, do you show them mercy or judgment? mercy. Do you see how this fits together? James's whole book is in one sense nothing but an expansion or exposition of the royal law of Leviticus 19 of loving your neighbor. Are you all with me on this? Leviticus 19. Let me read this and close with, with two short verses from the New Testament. Leviticus 19 12 to 18. Okay? You must not swear falsely. Isn't that interesting? Didn't James just say something about swearing falsely or not swearing by heaven and earth? Don't swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God. I am Yahweh. 
You must not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages due a hired man must not remain with you until morning. You must not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But you are to fear your God. I am Yahweh. You must not act unjustly when deciding a case. Didn't unjust actions, we talked about that last week. Don't be partial, wasn't that last week, to the poor or give preference to the rich. Judge your neighbor's fair, neighbor fairly. You must not go about spreading slander. Slander has to do with your what? Your mouth, your tongue. Among your people, you must not jeopardize your neighbor's life. I am Yahweh. You must not harbor hatred against your brother. Where do your bad words come from, according to James? Your, your heart, your hatred in your heart, right? Re rebuke your neighbor directly, and you will not incur guilt because of him. Okay? Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of the community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. What is James talking about? He's talking about Leviticus 19. He's talking about what it means to love your neighbor. So here's my two New Testament references that I want to close with. You should write these down and you should learn them. Ephesians 4.29. I've said this to you guys many, many times. My Adam's paraphrase is build up or shut up. All right? What he says is no foul language is to come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need. So that it gives grace to those who hear. In other words, you're showing mercy and you're helping build somebody up. Hence my paraphrase, build up or shut up. In other words, put a filter on it. Bridle it. Bite your tongue. Unless you're going to build up. I want you to remember that this afternoon when we're at the courts. I want you to remember that this afternoon when we're at the park. I want you to remember that when we're at lunch together. Build up or and the second verse is Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. In other words, next slide, think what? Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? That icon is at the top of your notes page on the, on the back side. Okay? It's the acronym THINK. Think before you speak. Think what? T. Is it true? Say it with me. Is it true? H. Is it helpful? I. Is it inspiring? N. Is it necessary? K. Is it kind? T-H-I-N-K. Think before you speak. Now, if every one of us would do that, would we have tongues of angels or demons? Angels. We would have tongues of angels. Would we show mercy or judgment? Mercy. Mercy. And so would we fall into the judgment of God or the mercy of God? The mercy of God, as long as you have your sins forgiven by Jesus. That is the challenge for us today. How will you talk? Because how you talk is based on how you think. So when I say tame your tongue, we also have to change how we think. Tame your tongue. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you revealed your word to us. We thank you that James is so serious about this. It's showing us that it's a very serious matter. It is about what's in our hearts. It matters. If we're speaking like the demons, that's because we got a heart problem. Help us to speak like the angels. They speak only what you tell them, God. Strike everything from our, our tongue, God, that is not from you. Help us to no longer have uncontrollable tongues, but we would grow in maturity and we would control our tongues. We would not speak hateful things, but we would speak God-honoring things. We would build one another up. Help us to think before we speak. I pray, God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as Savior, they might come see you this morning. 
can find out how they can have their sins forgiven by trusting in Jesus because he paid for their sins already. He wants them to be in his family. We thank you that you said who died on the cross paying for our sins and that we can be part of that family. In Jesus' name. Amen.